Welcome back to Agent Investor, inspiring stories of active agents investing in real estate and building passive income. In a business where potential deals are all around you, why not leverage your skills to invest for yourself, your family, and your future? And now, let's jump into the latest episode of Agent Investor. I'm your host, Tom Caffarella, and joining me in Portland, Oregon today is Paul Campbell. Paul, what's going on today? Just another beautiful day in paradise over here in Portland. Man, I love how you East Coasters say Oregon. Cracks me up every time. How do you say it? Oregon? I don't think we say it right, but uh, who knows, man? It's just funny. Every, yeah. we're, I think we're saying it wrong, but we tell ourselves that we're saying it right. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, Boston is you know notorious for having some crazy accents. So mine is actually not even close to as pronounced as most of the people locally, um, but it still is definitely noticeable. So I know I asked you a little bit about your background before you jumped on because I wanted to make sure that I fully understood everything. But can you sure. kind of give our, our listeners a background about like where you're at today and you're investing in real estate business? Yeah, man, I'm, I'm a little bit all over the place. So forgive me if I jump around, but um, primarily I run a retail brokerage team. And uh, prior to that, I, I owned a, a slightly larger boutique brokerage with a business partner. And at the beginning of the year, we broke off a smaller team and we're, we're building that here in the Portland area. Uh, we also have an investment division. I have an investment company. I do investment partnerships in mostly the single family real estate space. And uh, I did a little dabbling in some real estate technology investing a while back. We'll see how that works out. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, other than that, uh, that keeps me pretty busy. Had a baby girl about two years ago. That's fun. That's awesome. I've got a, a five-year-old girl. I've got a two-year-old son and a one-year-old son. So oh, is that man, your... you're a busy man. <laughs> uh, you know, um, I say this and, you know, like my wife really does everything. And a lot of people say that, but if, if she really didn't, I would never be able to run my business the way that I, that I do. And so, you know, I help as much as I can, but the reality is that she does so much. So, um, we're also, awesome. sorry, we're also really blessed. My mother, um, had a daycare growing up and she shut down her daycare, but she still takes care of my three kids a few days a week. So, oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, the so, support structure is everything, man. It's, it's amazing. I don't know how some people do it without having it, but a lot of people do. And, um, you know, I get tip their hat, yeah. but, yeah, but yeah, I don't think I could do it, but, no, uh, sir. so, you know, like I mentioned to you, like you're where a lot of the people that are listening, my audience wants to be. So tell us again about your numbers really quick. Um, how many, uh, retail deals did you do last year? How many investment deals did you do? And what did those kind of look like? Well, you know, bear with the last year's numbers just a little bit, because obviously last year uh, it was a bigger brokerage and now we're a smaller team. But uh, we closed a little bit over 150 retail transactions last year. Uh, and on the side, we did, you know, I think it was 38 uh, flip properties over the year. And uh, we also did some partnerships, some joint equity ventures with probably another 14 or 15 deals. So that's where we were at last year. And that was actually a so little year. Uh, so Michael personally first? is about 60 to 80 deals a year, but we didn't hit it last year. <laughs> cool. Um, so what came first, the, the real estate brokerage business, the investment business, or did they both come kind of at the same time? Man, it's all a blur. It was so long ago. Um, 
Let's see. So I got what, in, what year did you get started? Okay, so I was doing mortgages in 2004 and 2005, and, and we started doing a few investment properties with a buddy of mine. And I'm not even sure whose idea it was. I think it might have just been over a few beers, and we're like, let's go buy some houses and flip them. Uh, but, you know, then the market started to get weird, and uh, I kind of found a niche in negotiating short sales. Uh, yep. And then as I kind of got good at that, the market continued to crash and I, uh, I switched from mortgage to the real estate investment side and got my license at about the exact same time because I felt the license, the real estate license would help me facilitate my short sale negotiations, add some credibility. And to be honest, I had no intention of really pursuing retail real estate at the time. It was all for the sake of short sales and investing, but um, they kind of grew together. Same exact story. I, I literally almost couldn't have a more identical story to you. Um, nice. You know, starting in real estate back in 2006, did my first flip in 2006, um, got my my license because I saw the market shifting. There were a ton of short sales um, at that time between 2007 and maybe 2011. We did a ton of short sales, and we were. Um, you know, making, you know, where, where you're at is 6% the norm for a sale or is it less for a retail sale? 6% is pretty standard around here. Uh, I've seen seven I've, and, and a lot of people sell around five. Uh, and once the banks got smart, they started trying to cap you at five. So around here, people on average do five and a lot of times we go to four. So when short sales really started popping up and we were getting 6%, I mean, it was like, extra fees on top of it. It was yep. that. And, and short sales, I don't know, I'm sure you were probably doing them in a similar fashion than we were. Um, you know, we were making the commission, we were buying the property, and we were getting fees on the negotiating side. Yeah. So I think one of the important things for our listeners to kind of think about now that it's like almost the end of 2018 is like that market's going to come back. And, you know, getting yourself prepared for that market and that shift will happen and there's different ways to make money in, in different shifts. And um, it sounds like you're, you know, a true entrepreneur in that you you went, you didn't necessarily get your real estate license because you wanted to do retail sales, but you saw an opportunity to take advantage of, of additional money coming in. Oh, absolutely. Uh, in fact, uh, it took me a while to switch my mindset once the real estate business got good again after the you know pseudo recovery, if you will, uh, to kind of back get back into that retail mode. Probably left a lot of money on the table by not moving my mindset a little bit faster than I did. Same here. So what what happened with me is like in 2010, 2011, 2012, every house I bought was either a short sale, a foreclosure. And then the market shifted. And when things shift in Boston, they shift really hard. And I think that happens the same as you, right? Important. Very similar. Very similar, yes. So our markets really rebound quickly. And I remember I was buying a bunch of properties on HUD Home Store. And it was like one of the best ways to get deals for me. All of a sudden, they completely dried up. And we were basically close to being out of business because we had no good deals left. Yeah. So we were forced to start marketing uh, to, to sellers off-market. And then we had so many great listing opportunities that we just passed up because we were like, who wants to, who wants to list the house? Yeah. So, you know, not a bad business though. Good margins. It's a great business. And you know what I love about it? And I always push people to get into it. It's like, you know, when you, when you flip, you've got to take some risk on, right. You've got to take risk with your money, somebody else's money. 
things go wrong, you know, sometimes you lose money on deals. When you're listing something, I mean, there's there's no risk to it and it's totally leverageable. And you talked about having a team. How many people are on your team now? Right now we've got an eight person team. So, you know, the team structure is, is one of the ways that, um, you know, I recommend doing it. And a, a lot of people go that route. I have got my own brokerage, but I've got teams within my brokerage like yours and they're, they're super Smart. successful. And so you had a brokerage and then you went to a team, you said? Yes, I did. Imagine that. I, I can imagine it because it's something that I think if I were to do it over again, I, I would probably personally start with a team. So what made you go the bro- brokerage to team route? And when did you do it? You know, I just, I honestly believe, and there's some data to back it up, and I'm, I'm sure there's people that have a perfectly valid argument on the other side, but, you know, the industry is definitely shifting. Yep. And if you don't, if you can't play with bigger boys, for lack of a better way of explaining it, or, or, or people that have a lot of resources behind them, if you can't even play on the same field, then I think it's just going to get harder and harder as the industry keeps shifting. And one way that you can do that and level that playing field is by working with a team. Teams generally have more resources. They generally have uh, more support. They generally provide more leads. Uh, you know, and on the surface, obviously, your splits are going to look lower to you. But, I mean, there's people on the team's uh, making six digits without, uh, really having to, you know, destroy their personal lives and it's still life changing money and they don't have to do everything that a single agent has to do. I I don't think I have any desire to be a single agent in this upcoming market. It's, it's a lot of work and and there's some people that are really amazing at it and they've got great referral bases and and an amazing database, but man, uh, I'm all team, especially moving forward. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like, you know, the, the assembly line kind of mentality where you're, you're getting all the tools and support and leads and all that good stuff, and you don't really have to think about it. And the thing I love about the team formation, if it's done right, and there are a lot of teams that don't do it right, but the teams that do it right, I mean, you know, uh, anyone who's ever been on, been on a team or seen teams, a lot of times teams pop up and the team leader is not providing any value. So it, it doesn't help either person, but when it's done right, the person actually makes more money, gets a better quality of life. And they have things that really they, a lot of times they can't get on their own. And I forget what the stat, yeah, I forget what the stat is about people failing out of real estate in their first year. But one of the reasons is because like you said, it's tough to compete with some, you know, a team that has everything on day one. Oh man, I was looking at my passwords list the other day. We have like, I don't know, 47 different passwords for different websites and resources that we own as a team. Like imagine having to come up with all that stuff in your first six months in the business, plus try and sell and meet clients. It just blows my mind. The other thing I think people don't realize both on the investment side and on the retail side is like how much money you need to spend in marketing in order to be successful. And it it kills me because I think like, you know, all these different companies that that sell these marketing services and leads, you know, they'll take 200 or 300 bucks from, from you a month. It's not, it's not enough. And they don't tell you that they, they will say, hey, you know, you can spend 50 bucks a month or 100 bucks a month and get enough leads, but it's not enough. I mean, you have to have either, you have to either significantly prospect or you have to have a significant marketing budget. Agreed. Absolutely. You have to. Otherwise, you don't get uh, enough. What do they, what do they call that? It's not scaled up enough that you can have a good return. So, um, so you, you started back in 05 or 06 or 07, sometime in that range. You were doing a bunch of short sales. Were you flipping them back then? 
Yeah, you know, I started with uh, basically having an investor that we sent deals to because uh, he was a super smart guy. He he just stacked his capital and didn't go crazy buying cars and boats and toys when everything was good. So he had a bunch of money sitting around for when the crash happened. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually learned a lot from that guy. And he uh, he bought probably our first 20 or 30 short sales right off the bat, helped us get the ball rolling. And then we were like, wait a minute, <laughs> we could probably do that. Yes. And I think that's kind of the evolution for most people. And whether you're an agent selling those deals to an investor or you're a wholesale selling those deals to an investor, you know, you start out and maybe you don't either have the capital or you don't have the contractors or you're just not brave enough at that moment to do it. And then you, you see other people doing it. You see the money that they're making and, you know, at the end of the day, um, real estate flipping and wholesaling and buy and holding. I mean, we're not putting a man on the moon. It's not the most complicated. It's not. I mean, no. people want to make it confusing. There's only a few things that you need to do in order to be successful. And marketing's one of them. And you you were getting the deal. So you were handing off. You were doing the heavy, you were doing the heavy lifting in some ways and then handing it off to somebody else who just had, you know, the capital and the construction team. So um you made a great point about the risk factor. You know, we weren't in a position at that point to take on that that financial risk with those purchases. Uh, so we got paid pretty darn good for finding somebody that would, and it put us in a position of being able to learn from them and making a really good amount of money in a, in a down year so that we could then start doing that. So, well, that's, you know. the ba- that's the balancing act because I think, like, for some people, they want to – some people never get in right? They never, they never flip. They keep seeing all these people make money and then they never do it. And they're making, you know, a a fair living, but they, they don't, you know, invest. And then you have other people who like put in, they, they kind of cash their chips in too early and they maybe, maybe they do a deal before they should have, and they lose money. And then sometimes they get knocked out of the game completely. So I think the point there is there's a time and a place to do it. And you have to have everything right. Like you have to have the right capital aside. You have to have contractors lined up and you have to be confident in your ability to find deals. Like if you keep seeing the deals that you're handing off, you know, turn into 50, 60, $70,000 profits, then you know, at that point, you, you, you know how to analyze the deals, you know how to find them at that point, then it's only the capital and the labor to, to kind of contend with. Absolutely. But, but so you, you talked about another thing uh, that that investor did that I think is hugely important again in late 2018, which is putting some money on the side yeah. And this is the time to do it. And um, we, we've got a bunch of rental properties that we've sold and we've got um, some, some more development type deals that we're holding off on because we want to make sure that we're ready to kind of move into the next part of the cycle. What do you think, how long do you think we have left for that <clears throat> to happen? All right. So I could just be drinking a bunch of Kool-Aid, but uh, I, I'm not, I just don't think that these are the same uh, pre-market conditions that happened, say, in 2003, 2004, 2005. So I guess what I'm getting at is, I mean, we would be completely ridiculous if we sat here and said there's never going to be a recession, there's never going to be a slowdown. That's obviously coming. But I don't think it's going to be the bloodbath in the real estate market that it was in 2007, 2008, 2009. Uh, in fact, uh, I read somewhere just the other day that of, of the last five recessions, uh, housing prices only really dropped for one of those five recessions. And that was the really nasty one that we Mm -hmm. just went through. 
So, you know, housing is still a solid investment, but, you know, I think people have definitely gotten spoiled over the last three to four years. Huge equity growth. You know, you could fall ass backwards into a flip, excuse my term, and, uh, you know, you come out golden. Uh, and that's something that you're not going to be able to do moving forward. And I think that's starting to happen now. Like you said about the Boston market, our market hit the brakes about two months ago, and it was fast, and it came out of nowhere. Yeah, um, We still have great numbers as far as uh, still being a seller's market, but people are taking their time trying to make good decisions moving forward. And what do you attribute that, that those breaks to? Man, I think that uh, I think that people finally realize that pricing going up this much, uh, instead of getting involved in the buzz and the competition of trying to find housing, they're like, well, hold on, let's wait, let's wait a second and see what happens here. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think that creates those breaks. Um, and I think the markets are going to experience an adjustment, if not necessarily a crash, but an adjustment. Because I think what people don't realize is it was pretty unreasonable 6, 12, 24 months ago. I mean, double-digit appreciation in a lot of markets, is, and that's not healthy over the long term. So, um, you know, you're going to have to go back to making some smart decisions with your money and your investments. And it's all going to come down to the buy. But if you ask me, I honestly think that your opportunities, especially on the investment side, are greater and more plentiful when the market has challenges that it gives to the consumer. So. Yep. And I, I think I've seen kind of the same thing in Boston right now. I haven't seen anything major happen in terms of like, it's not an interest rate thing. It's not a job loss thing. It's, it's more, it seems like the sentiment is of the buyer that they're just being more cautious and they're just saying, Hey, look, the prices are super high. There's not a lot of inventory. They're just getting in more of the habit, I think, of, of waiting a little bit longer. Yeah. Um, just taking a deep breath. <laughs> it's a, it's a market deep breath, I guess. So there's going to be this period, right, where let's just say that the market is going to correct today. Let's just say that that breath that we're talking about is some sort of correction and there is some sort of dip. And you talked about there being a lot more opportunity for investors when the market crashes. And I agree with that. And I kind of got into the market um, really when it crashed. Like I wasn't really doing a lot of business as it was crashing. What's the opportunity, in your opinion, to make money when it is actually falling? Like what's the highest and best way in your opinion when it's on the downturn? Oh, well, it's just really important that you stay ahead. One of the biggest things that, uh, biggest mistakes that I've made in my career and that I've seen so many sellers on the retail side make is just chasing the market. You don't ever want to chase the market down. Um, yeah. So you you just need to have a good understanding of what that market shift looks like, what that downward trajectory is, and consider that in your underwriting. I guess what I'm getting at is if you're expecting a 5% shift, and the other thing that you need to consider is your timelines. If your timelines are not on point, it's going to adjust your numbers. So make sure your contractors are solid. Make sure that you have an organized system and a good calendar. Let's take a quick break from the episode. To get weekly video trainings and connect with other agent investors, join our free private Facebook group. Just go to joincamerancoaching.com and we'll add you to the group. We'd love to see you there. So that's the biggest thing that we've adjusted is the timeline stuff. 
So in, in Boston, there's a lot of multifamily. There's a shortage of housing. The way Boston was built, there's not a lot of room left to even develop. Sounds like Portland East, man. Same thing. Same thing, yeah. So so what we do here a lot is we'll have like a, a three-family and we'll turn it into condos. And those projects for us take a year to a little bit over a year. And those are the ones that we're cutting out now. So what, what we're specifically looking for now are the single families that we can go in, paint and carpet, and try to get back on the market within 60 to 90 days. Because we feel like we feel like even right this second that there's a little bit of risk there because of that breath. And we feel like if we can get stuff on and off the market really quickly, then our capital is, is a little bit less at risk. Um, and then the other adjustment that we personally made was to discontinue buying rental properties. Um, in our market, few years back, I mean, you could throw a dart at any multifamily and it was a great opportunity. And now, even when we get 20 or 30% discounts, it's like, this still is barely cash flowing. Oh, yeah. So, so we've completely put the brakes on that outside of the business. The agency side of the business is the part that we're specifically focused on now because there is no risk. And, um, you know, I've got a 265-person uh, brokerage and I've got some teams within the brokerage and we're looking at that right now as the area where we're putting our time, effort, and energy because we feel like when the market does crash, there's going to be a lot of sales. There'll be a lot more inventory and a lot more transactions actually happening. Well, I know this is investment-based conversation, but uh, on the brokerage side, man, I mean, where the expertise of a, of a solid agent comes into play isn't necessarily when everything is great. The expertise really comes into play and where you can give way more value to your clients, your consumers, and the families that you're helping support and working with is when things aren't going great. That's when they need you the most. So that's a smart move on your part. So I listened to a podcast, a guy I follow on the residential side. Um, it's called The Level Up Podcast by Greg Harrelson. Oh, nice. Um, he's, he's really good, but what he talks about, he's talking about the market changing and he's over in California. And what he mentioned was that some, similar to what you just said is that that's really when you become an asset to the client. Cause right now, you know, you can go out there, you can tell them their property is going to be worth X and sometimes it ends up being worth more than X and you didn't do anything, but he said, you know, it's going to be time very, very shortly to have some really difficult conversations with them and really to advise them that in a falling market, you almost need to take 5% less today so that you don't take 15% less in six months or a year from now. And I think that goes both. And I look to me, I look at residential real estate and investing. I don't look at it as two separate things. I, I don't even distinguish really the difference only because you're doing the same thing when you're going out with um, an investor, a seller who wants to sell to an investor, right? You know, again, you know, take them taking more of a discount today so they don't take more of a discount later. And I think it just goes back to like being really well educating and understanding the market. And if you were a little bit ahead of the curve, you can, you can be a lot more successful than somebody like you mentioned, that's chasing the market. Oh yeah. You have to be because uh, chasing the market down is a terrible position to be in. And you said it perfectly. You'll end up taking 10, 15% when you could have just taken five. So um, do you do any rental property investing? I just started to do that. Um, you know, it's funny because uh, you had uh, Bo on your podcast uh, an episode or two ago, I think, and uh, him and some of the guys that I met in some mutual networking groups that we're a part of really opened my eyes to the difference between an equity market and an income market. 
so much like uh, I heard you say about Boston, there's not a lot of cash flowing opportunities here in Portland. I think you guys might be worse than us. Yeah, I think we might. In I think we of, might. Like I, I look at it across the country, like rent to price ratio in different areas. And you guys are pretty bad, like to the point where, <laughs> no, I, I, I know yeah, we are. I look at other markets to invest in. And like, I know at some point I've looked into Portland and I'm like, man, they have it worse than us. It's yeah, really- no, it's pretty bad here, man. It's, it cracks me up. Uh, you know, our, don't even get me started. I'll ruin your whole podcast, man. The, the city government here is not supporting the whole landlord business at all. But uh, yeah, so my eyes have just been very recently opened up to these other markets across the country and the types of numbers that are involved. So, you know, our, our current business model is to, is to use Portland and the market that we're intimately familiar with as an income market or excuse me, an equity market, take advantage of that equity uh, and then take that equity when we make our sales and uh, reinvest it into an income market. And there's so many good markets out there. Take your pick. I think that's um, the only play you can have in a market like yours and mine right now. And like I said, I'm kind of just like pausing completely because even though, and I, I do buy some property, I live in Massachusetts, but I do buy some stuff in Florida. That's a little bit where the numbers do make more sense, but I've personally decided just to put it on hold because I don't think we're super far away. And I just keep flashing back to like the type of deals that I could have gotten going back to 2010, 2011. And I totally agree with you. I don't think those deals are going to come back, but even if it's going in that direction, I just want to be ready um, to, to do it. But I love the fact that you're, because every market is different. Like every market, like the fact that you're an equity market, like the, the the big benefits of that is like every listing you have is a big listing. Like the numbers are big. And then every flip you do, the numbers are big. And then you go into to other markets, um, like some of the ones that you're talking about where they're really more like rent to price ratio favorable. And, you know, Indianapolis or in an area big like Mem- Memphis or something like that. And, you know, those guys are, they're happy to make 30, 35,000 on a flip. And we don't even look at flips in that number because we're spoiled on the equity side, but they're also spoiled on the, the, the rental side. I mean, every, they can cash flow in single families in a lot of those markets. Absolutely. Can cash flow with numbers that blow my mind. Yep. You can buy a house for $40,000, $50,000 in some of those markets that you can literally rent for a thousand dollars. What, what market are you looking into or have you done deals in? So we, we've done precious few deals, but Indiana, like you said, is, is a major one for us. We, we just love the industry in some of those uh, neighborhoods and cities. We don't think that the rents are going to take a big dive if the market does adjust. Uh, we're just now starting to look in a couple of areas in Florida and, uh, in and Texas. Uh, we're looking the surrounding Tampa Okay. So not necessarily Tampa Central, but pretty much anything surrounding Tampa within a stone's throw distance. So one of the things that I, I looked at is the tenant landlord laws. And it sounds like Portland, again, mirrors Boston in terms of that. Um, when we have to evict a tenant here, you know, you're looking at upwards of six months to a year. Yep. So the neighboring state, which for us is New Hampshire, um, it's, it's funny. I mean, it's the exact opposite. So you know you can get people out really really quickly, and really the the laws favor the the landlord in, in that state. Um, the other thing that you mentioned, you know, about Indiana and some places like that, is like if you look at them over the course of time on a chart, um, 
they don't do much. Like their appreciation is minimal. Some of them never go down. I mean, I've looked at, I don't know specifically Indiana, but there are some markets like that that are really heavy cash flow markets that they just have never even had a dip. Even like when the market crashes, it's, they just, they're going up like one or two or 3% a year. Yeah. Um, that's crazy. It's interesting. Tampa doesn't fit that category. Tampa's had a lot more appreciation, but um, still a great, a great market for sure. Yeah. And you know, we're starting to poke around in Texas too. Where, where in Texas? Oh man. All uh, Texas is a big place. <laughs> I had no idea how big it was. <laughs> it's, it's crazy. But you know, there's uh there's places outside of the the bigger cities where you can still get houses for, you know, sub hundred thousand that are great houses. So, um, you know, and off the top of my head, I don't even remember some of these names, but we're looking at anything that's within 45 minutes of San Antonio and Austin. Okay, cool. So, yeah, I mean, I love the idea of, of taking like the equity, you know, capitalizing and making your income in the equity market and then pushing that into a cash flow market. Um, you're taking cash flow market. Yep. And so you're, you're getting back to your, your brokerage. So how, how did that kind of like form? Like, did you, you're, are you the team leader of the team? Yeah. Yeah. I'm a team leader and owner uh, of the, the team itself. It, it just formed because when I was a brokerage owner, my, my passion and what I was doing at that time was running a team within our brokerage. Uh, and, you know, my business partner is, is an amazing real estate agent and, uh, and it's just perfectly suited to be this amazing principal broker, but he didn't necessarily want to be involved in running a team. So, you know, it kind of ran its course and I wanted to, I wanted to focus fully on the team and he wanted to focus fully on the brokerage. And so that's when we decided to, to make a move. And uh, that's kind of where my love of the team concept came from was the last few years running it within my brokerage. Um, now what brokerage did you join? Well, we just drank the EXP Kool-Aid. We're okay. super excited about it. Cool. One of my yeah. big things in this whole real estate game is just how how amazing the opportunity is in real estate for people to change their lives, change their wealth, you know, give their families better opportunities than without real estate. I think the numbers are pretty obvious there. So EXP gave us an opportunity to add a couple of different tools to that toolbox to help people grow their wealth and it was something that I didn't feel like I could recreate on my own as a brokerage owner. So I think that's an important thing, you know, for people, whether they're joining another brokerage or what, whatever you're looking at, like sometimes at least I know I've made the mistake of like being kind of arrogant and saying, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I think, no, I don't know. I just how, swallow the pill. <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, for me, I'm, I'm 36, just turned 36 a few weeks ago. And, um, when I was in my twenties, I mean, it was just like, no one could tell me anything. And it's like, the older I get, the more I realize how stupid I am. And the more I, more I realize that I need other people. And part of that, you know, is kind of like, you know, maybe it's cool to open your own brokerage and have your name and all that good stuff. But in a lot of cases, you're better off leveraging somebody else who's already used systems and tools. And that's both for agents that are looking to join a team and for somebody like you who had their brokerage, who felt it was better to bring your brokerage somewhere else. And it was a tough decision, man. I mean, ego is definitely a major factor. Uh, I think ego is, a factor. ego is a huge factor. I mean, I think again, going back to myself, like I think we underestimate sometimes how big of a factor the ego is. And then 
you know, like if you don't overcome it, sometimes you're shooting yourself in the foot financially. Oh, 100%. And if I had gotten over my ego eight months ago, we would have been more entrenched in this uh, in this new business model. We'd have more stock. And God, here, here's a perfect example. When I first started looking at the EXP team structure, their stock was at, uh, I think, about $6 a share. And it's at 15 now, and that's uh, eight months later. Yeah. Had we gotten in... Uh, because you get stock for performance and blah, 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 uh, not to turn it into a recruiting pitch, but uh, we would have had a stock portfolio that had basically tripled if I had just gotten over myself last year. So. Mm. <laughs> never too late, though. <laughs> never too late to, to check your ego at the door, I think. Yeah, and that's just one piece of the puzzle. So, you know, finally, I just, uh, we jumped in and so far, so good. Yeah, so, um, so I have... Um, commission advanced business um and i don't know if you're really even familiar with what that is but basically like when agents get to a pns um we will actually buy their commission from them and it's, it's basically like factoring for real estate agents but um when we were thinking about doing it and we really love the business model and again i don't want to get into to that business too much it's a very insignificant part of like my overall scope of what i do and it's a very passive business but you know, we just, we just franchised and, uh, we, we, we knew, we knew enough about the model that we could probably figure out most of the stuff on our own, but we just looked at it and I have two partners and we looked at it and we said, look, we want to shortcut this as fast as we possibly can. So a lot of times, like for me, you know, in that case, I, I bought into a franchise and, and in some cases it's just like, can I pay a coach? Like who knows something more than me? And it's yep. not even about what you give up. It's like, speed to success for me has become the, the most critical factor, especially now with having three kids, my time is getting more limited and more limited and time goes by faster and faster. So for me, it's like the, the quicker I can, if I can get the result in six months rather than a year and a half, now I look at that like, well, I'm willing to pay almost anything to get that faster result. Well said, especially with the kids, man, like my life priorities are definitely starting to change. So got to get there quicker they have to they they have to so what would you say to somebody and again i know a lot of our listeners are kind of on the the newer side you know uh september 2018 they come to you i want to get into real estate like how would you kind of map it out for them like their first kind of year in the business well you know i'm a little biased based on how i brought myself into the business so i think i just kind of see where their focus was you know if they wanted to learn it from the retail side or they wanted to start learning it from the investor side and to be honest learning it from the retail side is a less painful journey um, if you want to jump right into the investment side we can definitely help you do that too but um, you know be ready be ready for some ebbs and some flows um, and, you know, once they tell me that, that'll give me some direction uh, as to, you know, what to teach them, what programs to put them in. Um, but more importantly is, uh, you know, just being willing to not necessarily take no for an answer and uh, just, you know, there's going to be a lot of daunting tasks that are going to come your way and people are going to tell you that it can't be done, but um, it very much can be done. You're living proof. I'm living proof. And, uh, you know, all the guests on your podcast are living proof. So, you know, why can't? Why couldn't you do it? That's what I was just telling them. Like, why not you? Yeah. And so um, what, what, would, what would be like the biggest piece of advice that you would give them in the beginning? Uh, well, 
my best advice comes from my biggest mistakes, right? So yep. <laughs> I think my, my best advice would be get your tax team 100% dialed in before you start doing deals. Because if you get a good tax team, they're going to save your ass down the road. Uh, and my second piece of advice would be, you know, make sure that you manage your database and you keep a record of your of your business, what you do. First couple of years in the business flipping, I couldn't even tell you what houses we flipped because we were just moving so quick, burned through them. And now when, uh, you know, when I'm going to institutions for, for funds, they're like, I need to see your portfolio. And my portfolio is two years light because I didn't keep good records. So um, there, there's a, there's a glimpse into my, my biggest professional regrets. Enjoy. So, so th this might be too advanced for some people and it might be right on point for other people, but typically speaking, like you want to work your way as much as you can into commercial bank financing. So like for us, I mean, we started, we couldn't get loans from anybody because we had no track record. And, um, you know, we started out with all hard money loans and then mm -hmm. we got to a point I don't even remember what the number is. My, my partner does all the books, but he'd be looking at it and he, you know, he analyzed the numbers and he said, if we could stop using hard money and just go to commercial lending, people who actually like to invest in fix and flips, people with track records, I think the number was like 600 grand we would add to the bottom line. Yep. So he spent the next two or three months just building relationships with every commercial lender and a lot of them were kind of like smaller mom and pop type uh, places that, you know, would do one deal here, one deal there. But like you said, they, they would not lend to us without having, you know, perfect financial records, a track history, track record. And for a lot of them, at least for us, they would start small and they would say, Hey, you know, we'll do one at a time or maybe do two at a time. And then they kind of built the relationship and, you know, now we've gotten to a point because we have such good relationships that really money isn't the issue anymore. It's mm -hmm. all about getting as many good deals as we possibly can and basically just mitigating our risk as much as we can. And that's what it should be. That's the most scalable opportunities, identifying amazing deals and, and underwriting them correctly. So you talked about like partnerships and stuff like that. Um, for your first couple of deals, how did you fund them? And did you raise capital in some other way or what was your kind of like financing strategies? Because I know that's another thing that a lot of people struggle with in the beginning. Oh yeah, no, the money is pretty critical. Um, <laughs> you know, we, we started with uh, the hard money thing. Uh, I've, I've developed, uh, and you touched on something that we kind of blew by. You said developed relationships with those commercial lenders. Uh, developing relationships is not, you know, uh, just reserved for commercial lenders. You need to I, you need to nurture those relationships on a personal level as well, mm -hmm. uh, because those people will help you get started when the banks won't talk to you. Um, you know, there's uh, there's plenty of people out there with 401k money that's not making them any returns uh, that have interest in doing this, um, and that's kind of where we started. We started with hard money, left for leverage, and we started with. Uh, you know, any amount of money from self-directed retirement accounts. Like we would get what is a small dollar for, you know, the, the type of projects that we do now, but we'd get $50,000 from somebody. And then we'd use that 50,000 to leverage with a hard money lender. Uh, and then we would uh, dump everything back into the, uh, the pot and split it up based on, you know, the percentage of ownership that we agreed to. And that would be one deal and that would close it out and move on to the next. I remember those days. 
Yeah, juggling a lot, and uh, you know, it definitely gets easier over time to to manage all that stuff. So, um, and so uh, we talked about a lot of different things today, um, and we talked about kind of future plans and stuff like that. Like, what what's your what's your number one area of focus? You talked about flipping. You talked a little bit about um, talked a little bit about buying whole stuff. Like, what over the next six months to 12 months is your number one thing that you want to focus on in your area of business? Personally, my number one focus right now is helping my team grow and helping all the people in my team really kind of uh, benefit from the new tools that we just got from our switch. Uh, And then that's my number one priority there. Uh, Number two is probably in association with that, we have what we call the easy sell program. So whenever we do a listing appointment, uh, we offer, we, we do a side-by-side cash offer and let them compare it. So um, we're, we're now really driving our investment projects through our retail team. Mm-hmm. So I'm not focusing as much on traditional lead gen or wholesalers or uh, any of those things on the investment side. It's really centered around the real estate team moving forward, at least for the next six months. Uh, I just personally believe that that is uh, if the main dish, if you will, and and all these opportunities to do projects are, are side dishes. But if you don't have a good main dish, then uh, it's not scalable. It's not something that you continue to do over time. So that's where the focus is for the next six months. I love it. Um, so how can our listeners get in touch with you if you have, they have some follow-up questions or do you have anything that you can kind of point them to? Oh, yeah. Um, I'm pretty easy to find. Uh, forgive me if it takes me a quick minute to get back to you. Uh, emails get stacked up pretty fast, but, uh, you know, my email address is paulc at coregrouppdx.com. And, uh, I welcome any questions. Cool. Well, I want to thank you for joining us today. A lot of valuable insight. I know our listeners are definitely going to be, uh, listening to this one, possibly more than once. So, uh, thank you for coming on and, uh, I will talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to Agent Investor, and especially thank you for sharing the show with other agents and reviewing the show on iTunes. Every time you share the show, you are potentially changing someone's life. To get weekly video trainings and connect with other agent investors, join our free private Facebook group. Just go to joincameroncoaching.com and we'll add you to the group. We'd love to see you there. And stay tuned for the next episode of Agent Investor.